This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it. That's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thank you so much for joining us again. Conservative writer David Horowitz, who's a former leftist, once had this to say, I had believed in the left because of the good it had promised. Now I learned to judge it by the evil it had done. It is becoming more apparent every day that the left is a danger to the future of our American republic, both in its ideology and in its tactics. And if God-fearing Americans are to preserve our republic, it's vital for us to educate ourselves about this movement and its mentality, and perhaps most importantly, its history. That's what my next guest has written about in co-authoring the new book. It's called Know Thine Enemy, A History of the Left, Volume 1. Stephen Sokup is vice president and publisher of the Political Forum and a fellow in culture and economy at the Culture of Life Foundation. And Stephen, it's wonderful to have you with us. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. I, I am fascinated with this because there is a long history here of the left. I think for a lot of people, they would believe it goes back to Lenin. You go back further than that, though. Where would you pinpoint the beginning of the movement that we know as the left today? Well, the term in itself comes from the first leftist movement, which is uh, the French Revolution. Uh, but we start uh, a few years before the French Revolution with the Enlightenment, which provided the ideas and the philosophy that eventually animated the French Revolution and then has animated the left uh, for you know, the better part of 250 years since. Right, right. So when you're looking at, say, the year 1734, science and reason, basically the Enlightenment said, ought to take the place of religion. Was that really the genesis of this movement, if you go all the way back to the time of the Enlightenment? Yeah, absolutely. Um, if you... Look at the history of the left and the leftist movements and the various philosophers who have promulgated uh, leftist ideology. The, the, the tie that binds them all together is this belief uh, that the existing moral, social, political structure uh, was outdated, uh, that it was based on superstition, that it was not fit for modern man, yeah. uh, and that modern, a, a modern healthy society needed to be governed uh, exclusively by reason. Right. So fundamentally, when you're looking at the war going on, the civil war, as you guys describe it in your book, that's going on in the United States, it's really the left versus the Judeo-Christian belief system. Yes, that that really is, if you're going to characterize the two sides that are at war, those are the sides. Yeah, without question. Um, My co-author, Mark Melcher, uh, is my business partner and was my boss before uh, we went into business together. And 20 years ago, uh, when we were watching uh, the Clinton-Lewinsky scandal unfold, it occurred to us that the reason why the Democrats and the Republicans viewed the scandal so differently was the fact that they were both operating from a, a completely different, a completely opposite moral playbook. Yes. Uh, the traditionalists believed in you know, the traditional Judeo-Christian moral ethic, and what, for, you know, for lack of a better term, what we called the postmodern uh, moral ethic, believed that what mattered was 
how a person felt, with whom his sympathies lied, uh, what he believed about uh, oppressed people rather than his own personal behavior. Uh, And so, you know, that was sort of the genesis of the idea for us to sort of try and figure out where these two uh, moral codes uh, developed. And it you know, this investigation took us back well over 200 years. Yeah. And what I find fascinating, though, is you see 20 years on plus they weaponize the issue of sex when it comes to Justice Kavanaugh. So they they turn around on the one hand. All they said during the Lewinsky scandal was it's just sex. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. But it mattered to the nth degree when they looked upon a conservative or Republican nominee for the Supreme Court that they thought they could take down in that way. Was that I mean, is that just a utilitarian tactic of the left? Just use what you have to use to gain your power? Well, I, I think part of it is, in fact, utilitarian. They, they want to force Republicans uh, or conservatives to uh, uphold the standards that they say they believe in. But I also think, in part, it's, it's this, this postmodern moral ethic where uh, they, they believe all women and, uh, you know, that whole mantra um, stems from the idea that women are the oppressed uh, sex in Western history, right. in all of history, right. uh, and therefore we should now to to uh, compensate for this uh, discrimination over uh, the centuries and millennia, believe women uh, without question, uh, sort of to make up for past injustice. You know, the irony here, though, is the fact that the United States has provided a place for women to flourish like no other time or in no other nation on Earth. And yet it is the left that refuses to talk about the real subjugation and abuse of women in the Islamic world. They're fine with that, but they're they're always going after the, the right, the Judeo-Christian uh, population of the United States, whether it's conservative Jews or, or conservative Christians, and saying, you guys are oppressing women. What is that about? How do you explain that disparity and that contradiction that when they talk about intersectionality and women are being oppressed, they turn a blind eye when women really are oppressed? Well, I think that a lot of that has to do with, you know, sort of this this postmodern uh, idea that uh, language is power and that uh, the use of language is how we manipulate one another to uh, gain power uh, and that the historically speaking the Christian white male has been the most effective in manipulating this power and so that now we have to uh, turn the tables and use language for our own purposes you know for the purposes of those who had previously been oppressed and among those who uh, they that the left believes have been oppressed and therefore need uh, some sort of um, redemption uh, are uh, minorities of any sort. And so I think that is what takes uh, a precedent over, you know, say women in in this particular instance. They're willing to defend uh, anything and anyone uh, who stands sort of in opposition to the white uh, Christian male uh, history of the West. Yeah, absolutely. But isn't this just a new version of proletarians unite intersectionality? Because that's basically what they're doing. It's the same thing. Maybe, you know, when you look back at the history of the Soviet Union, they were trying to use the whole, oh, we need to rise up against the oppressor. I mean, it's the same thing. It's just new victims. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the second volume of our book ends with the 1960s. And we ended there in large part because uh, with the 1960s, uh, we see sort of a, a dramatic shift away from, you know, what would be called uh, 
economic leftism toward cultural leftism. Yes. And, and so the idea that the workers of the world should unite to this sort of culturally oppressed of the world should unite against their oppressor is sort of takes hold in the 1960s. Sure. Now, can you speak to the Frankfurt School and the influence of the Frankfurt School in this uh, trend that we know as cultural Marxism and the march, the long march through the institutions? Uh, A lot of people talk about that these days, but I think there are many, many Americans who who certainly do not understand Marcuse and some of those thinkers that have so greatly influenced today's left. Well, uh, the Frankfurt School... uh, sort of came into being in uh, Weimar, Germany. Um, it was during the post-World War I period, there was a lot of uh, self-reflection among uh, the Marxists because they had sort of expected that the war and the end of the war and all of that would lead to this global uh, Marxist revolution. And when it didn't happen, they had to try and figure out why it didn't happen. Right. Um, and they came to the conclusion, Antonio Gramsci uh, in his prison cell in Italy, and you know the eventual intellectual founders of uh, the Frankfurt School uh, in the underground in Germany came to the same conclusion, which was that the left, the 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 workers, the people couldn't rebel because they had this false consciousness that they believed uh, what had been told them, and they weren't aware of their true circumstances, and that in order to get uh, the people of the West to rebel, they needed to change this consciousness. And the way to change that consciousness would be to take over the institutions. Right. Now, the Frankfurt School has, has been you know, wildly successful in doing so. Um, you know, they were uh, essentially a think tank uh, associated with, the Frank- with <clears throat> Frankfurt in uh, Germany, but then fled uh, eventually to the United States and took up shop Uh, at Columbia University, and from there, over the subsequent couple of decades, uh, infiltrated uh, American education and became the dominant um, intellectual force in American higher education. Hang on a moment. We'll be back with Stephen Sokup, his book, Know Thine Enemy. Stay with us. We'll be back. Here's Dan Steiner, president of Preborn, with an important update. COVID-19 is creating a surge in unplanned pregnancies as Americans shelter in place. Meanwhile, preborn crisis lines are flooded and we have quadrupled our patients seeking abortions. Your help is needed now more than ever as clinics had to cancel spring fundraisers. Would you consider sponsoring an ultrasound to introduce moms to their preborn babies? When a young mom sees her baby on ultrasound, she'll choose life 80% of the time. Preborn centers are the alternative to Planned Parenthood. And this May, through a challenge grant, preborn is able to send $100,000 to clinics if this goal is reached. You can help. Call 855 855- 5402 baby now one ultrasound is just $28 but this challenge will double your efforts to donate just call 855-402-BABY that's 855-402-2229 all gifts are tax deductible once again call 855-402-BABY or there's a banner to click at janetmefford.com are you in need of a health care program you're in luck as a member of liberty health share you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month, and there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $199 per month, and there's no network so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. 
Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more by calling 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561 or visit libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford Today, and now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back to Janet Mefford Today. Great to have you with us. Also great to have with us Stephen Sokup. He's vice president and publisher of the Political Forum and co-author of Know Thine Enemy, A History of the Left, Volume 1. And obviously there's more than one volume. This is so interesting, though, to go back and trace the background to the left and, and go through all of these parts of history that people need to know about, Stephen. We were discussing the Frankfurt School a little bit and how wildly successful this influence has been on the United States and the march through the institutions. How do you view the power structure of the left at the moment in terms of not just control of America's universities, by and large, but also the media, Hollywood, all of these, you know, so many different aspects of culture. People would say the left just has a lockdown on it. Can you reflect on that a little bit and talk about the importance of the triumph of cultural Marxism and what it means for us as Americans? Well, um, going back through history, uh, you know, philosophers from, you know, from Aristotle to C.S. Lewis uh, to Klaus Rehn at at Catholic University have always made the argument that uh, the little human animal, as as Lewis called him, uh, needs to be... Uh, educated and needs to have the values of society reinforced uh, constantly over and over and over again that the stories we tell our children that the tales they learn in school that these things are, are valuable in setting their minds as to what is most important in society and if you look at what the left has done in this country, not only have they taken over education, they dominate education from, you know, preschool on the, all the way up through higher education, but they've, they've taken control of the stories that are told our children through yes. movies, yes. Uh, through uh, children's books, through uh, basically any media you can think of. Uh, the left controls the narrative that is taught to our children, and so unless parents are actively seeking to counteract that influence, then essentially the left has a free hand to do and to inculcate uh, subsequent generations in any way it seems fit. Oh, yeah. I mean, you think about the widespread use of Howard Zinn's book of People's History of the United States. I mean, that has spread all sorts of bad history that isn't true to a whole generation and beyond of Americans. And that does impact kids as they grow up and they believe. I mean, you look at this poll that was recently taken and it shows these millennials basically thinking America is racist, that it's not mm-hmm. great and saying that Barack Obama was more influential than George Washington. <laughs> I, that does not come about unless you have had some very serious indoctrination. Yeah, Absolutely. 
It's just, I don't know. It, and this is, I think, where we see a lot of hand-wringing on the part of Christians and, and conservatives who say, what do we do about this? As you say, it's important for us to hand down the truth to our kids. But as to the participation that we have in the culture, the civil war that's going on right now, there are even conservatives who say the war is over and we lost. Would you share that view or would you say there is actually room for optimism in turning things around? Well, there's always room for optimism, uh, particularly if you believe that the truth is on your side. Right. Um, the, the key, of course, is going to be retaking those institutions. It's not as if we can you know, get a majority in Congress and the presidency and then uh, change the world. That's not the way it works. In order to take back the culture in this country, we also have to take back the, the institutions that transmit the culture. Yes. Uh, that starts with education, that goes to higher education, but it also includes newspapers and entertainment, uh, movies, etc. Yeah, it does. It does, but easier said than done, because now when you have conservatives, for example, who are hired as, as professors on American campuses, they have to keep their mouths shut to a large extent or lose their jobs. So unless the institutions themselves are changed from within or they collapse and we build new schools, exactly how could we accomplish that? Well, there are, uh, there are some specific institutions uh, that are dedicated uh, to uh, transmitting the culture uh, in a traditional fashion and with traditional, uh, the traditional understanding of, of our moral and ethical purpose. Right. Um, so some are religious, then there's, there's Hillsdale, yes. uh, which is, is a very important uh, you know, sort of touchstone in this idea of bringing back or taking back uh, our cultural institutions, and I had breakfast just a couple weeks ago with a fundraiser from Hillsdale who told me things that I didn't know uh, about what the school is doing, uh, including uh, discussing setting up satellite campuses and running a program uh, for, I believe he said, 36 charter schools oh, wow. throughout the country. Yes, they're doing so that. It's that kind of stuff where you can start small, and you have to expect to start small, and then take a considerable amount of time uh, to uh, make the, to put in the effort and to see results. Can you speak to the issue, Stephen, of the increased totalitarianism that's beginning to show itself? We see this uh, day by day, for example, on the issue of the LGBT movement. And, you know, if you don't allow your child to declare himself a, a girl today and go along with hormone treatments, then you may lose custody of your child. This sort of, I mean, this is actually happening in the United States of America or on the issue of free speech. The tech giants who are censoring conservatives and kicking them off Twitter or kicking them off Facebook and people feel powerless. Why is it that in the history of the left, that totalitarian impulse comes up again and again and again? To what do you attribute that totalitarian impulse? Well, it it comes from the fact that, you know, their notion of a good society is one based on reason. But reason is a subjective term. Hmm. Uh, What is reasonable uh, varies from one person to, to the next. And so when they insist on imposing their version of reason, they find that people resist. Um, You know, this is the nature uh, of the left throughout history, is that people resist its demands, and then in order to uh, force compulsion, they have to get more and more authoritarian over time. Right. 
Right. But that's scary because that is not our history as Americans. We are unique in the history of the world where we have a First Amendment. We've always had a shared belief that the First Amendment was important precisely because people should be able to say things that others don't want to hear. That's how you can have a good back and forth and come to a, a arriving at the truth. If you silence people, you're never going to come to the truth. You're just going to have, again, Orwell's 1984. Well, you know, the good thing about our current uh, situation, I think, is that uh, many on the left are uh, just patently ridiculous uh, (laughs) in the values that they embrace. Yes. Um, You know, one of the things uh, about the left historically is that uh, as it as movements progress through society and as they find society unwilling uh, to participate, uh, the values and the goals uh, change. Uh, and I think you're seeing that uh, a little bit with, you know, Twitter and with uh, the idea of, you know, transgender being you know, sort of the dominant cultural feature yeah. of the day. You know, you have Twitter banning many in the transgender community, which is now sort of the dominant cultural uh, community, uh, at least uh, ideologically. And so they have these people banned. And, uh, you know, it's not just conservatives. It's anybody who holds any any beliefs that contradict the current uh, regime. Don't get out of line. Well, where do you see this headed? Because we see people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez elected the Democratic Socialist. Frankly, I love it whenever she gives an interview because she gives us so much material to show why socialism is ridiculous and why this is not the direction we want to go. But do you see increasingly the likelihood that the Democrat Party will openly embrace at least a European style of socialism? I mean, in, in large measure, they're already there. They're opening you know, the door for that, for sure, with Bernie Sanders and Alexandria. How far are they going to push this Marxist thing, do you think? Well, I, I don't think they're going to push it too terribly far. If you look at the history of American Marxism uh, or American leftism in particular, it's not uh, all that Marxist. It's, it's more... Uh, it's more nihilist than that. It's more uh, materialist than that. It's if you look at what Bernie Sanders is proposing, and particularly if you look at his tuition, you know, free to college tuition or uh, college loan forgiveness, that sort of idea. That's a massive, massive middle class entitlement. That doesn't have anything to do with the workers or with the poor. That's all about the creature comforts of the middle class. Yeah. And that's sort of where the American left is. Is it's about supplying. Uh, entitlements to the middle class. Right. And yet, fundamentally, it's still the Marxist impulse of take from one and redistribute it to others who haven't earned it, which is fundamentally at odds with our American understanding of private property. And that's something, yeah, a lot of people worry about that. If if they can take away my money and give it to somebody else for their health care and take away my money and give it to somebody else for their college tuition, what limit will there ever be on what the government has a right to steal from me? Well, you know, eventually um, we we have to hope or assume uh, that they'll run out of money to take. Yeah, true. Um, that true. Uh, eventually uh, the plans that they propose uh, will become too costly, uh, that people will start to uh, chafe a little bit and will rebel. That's right. Do you see the millennial generation is taking on an even more radical form than the 60s generation when it comes to the leftist ideology? Well, uh Currently, absolutely. Um, but you know, the important thing to remember about uh, the baby boomers, for example, is they were the radicals on the left 
uh, 40 years ago. Uh, and they are the radicals on the right today. Um, you know, the, the old apocryphal quote from Churchill about, uh, you know, being a liberal when you're 20 or, and being a conservative when you're 30 yes. seems to make sense over time uh, that uh, as a generation goes along, as it embraces uh, the responsibilities of adulthood, even if it tries to deny them, uh, that it grows uh, slowly but surely more conservative. Very good. Well, people need to read The History of the Left. The name of the book is Know Thine Enemy. Stephen Sokup with us. Stephen, it was great to have you here. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Janet. All right. God bless you. Thanks for being here. And we'll be back on Janet Mefford today. This archived broadcast of Janet Mefford Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back to Janet Mefford today. Well, if you believe what the news tells you, slain homosexual icon Harvey Milk was a hero while cult leader Jim Jones was a murderous fundamentalist Christian. Both those statements are far from the truth. But as my next guest notes, the truth becomes obvious when you look a little bit more closely at the ties of the San Francisco political class to Jim Jones and see that much of what plagued Jonestown actually plagued San Francisco first. It's really an interesting story written about by Dan Flynn, who is senior editor of the American and spectator and author of several books. His latest is Cult City, Jim Jones, Harvey Milk, and 10 Days That Shook San Francisco. Dan, it's great to have you here. How are you? Outstanding. Thank you for having me. Good. It's great to have you here. You don't often think, I guess if you don't live in San Francisco, about Jim Jones and Harvey Milk being considered in the same sentence, but this is really an interesting story. What is the connection between those two? Well, Jim Jones provided Harvey Milk uh, campaign volunteers. He gave him a printing press, uh, free publicity when Milk needed uh, entertainers for a street fair that he was uh, overseeing. The temple gave him uh, professional level entertainers and a very warm relationship because Jones was someone who spoke out in favor of gay rights at a time when very few uh, men wearing uh, collars were, were doing that. Um, and in turn, Harvey Milk gave Jim Jones something much greater, which was legitimacy. In, uh, in the letters that um, are, were written by, by Milk to Jones, you really see the tightness of their alliance. I mean, he wrote to him, he said, my name is cut in stone for you and your people. And um, a lot of personal letters to that effect in the archives at the California State Historical Society. But you don't get that when you look at the movie Milk starring Sean Penn, which won an Oscar, the, um, the documentary that was released, uh, narrated by Harvey Firestein in the 1980s, that also won an Oscar. There's no mention of, of uh, Jim Jones and Harvey Milk having any sort of relationship whatsoever. What Milk gave Jones was when, when Jones was under fire in San Francisco and fled to Guyana, um, there was a, um, you know, a, a number, number of criminal allegations against him. One of them was that he had kidnapped a six-year-old boy and his parents wanted him back. Mm. Harvey Milk took the side of the kidnapper, uh, Jim Jones, and against uh, the parents. He called the parents bald face, the father a bald faced liar, and the mother 
He said she was guilty of blackmail and said that Jim Jones was a man of the highest character. He said this to the president of the United States, Jimmy Carter, in a letter that he wrote to, um, to the president in 1978. He also wrote letters to Forbes Burnham, who was the prime minister of Guyana. Uh, he told the, uh, Joseph Califano, who was one of the top cabinet officials in the Carter administration, that Jones was alleviating the world food crisis at uh, Jonestown, hmm. uh, that Jonestown was a beautiful retirement community that people would pay thousands of dollars to live in, all sorts of absurd statements designed to um, give these people the idea that Jim Jones was doing something great rather than something evil in Guyana. And the, the long and the short of it is, is that six-year-old boy dies in, in Guyana, in Jonestown. And um, everything that Milk said about uh, People's Temple, said about Jonestown, said about Jim Jones was a lie. That's crazy. Why in the world would he go to such lengths for Jim Jones? I mean, I can understand if you like campaign contributors or you like people who support you and your political uh, aims and so forth. But I mean, that sounds like going beyond the pale there, going overboard defending Jim Jones. Why? Well, it it wasn't just milk. There were a whole number of people in San Francisco, um, including the mayor, George Moscone. I mean, one of the, the reasons I wrote this book when I was a little kid, when I heard about Jonestown and that over 900 people had killed themselves at the behest of this madman, I thought that is the craziest thing I'd ever heard of. When I was an adult, I found out that George Moscone, the mayor of San Francisco, appointed Jim Jones to the housing commissioner. He quickly became the chairman of the housing commission in San Francisco, which is pretty, pretty horrifying considering what he did to his tenants down in, in uh, Guyana, you know, effectively making him the largest landlord in the city of San Francisco. So when we think about Jim Jones, we think about guys like John Wayne Gacy or Ted Bundy or Charles Manson. We don't think about people like that holding positions of civic responsibility, holding powerful positions. But that's who Jim Jones was in San Francisco. And I think it tells you something about San Francisco in the 70s. It was really the hangover after the high of the 1960s, where you had, you know, this the summer of love and hate Ashbury and all that was going on in San Francisco. There's always a, pi- a price to be paid for the party. And in, in the 1970s, when you had the Symbionese Liberation Army uh, and the, uh, the New World Liberation Front, the Zodiac Killer, the yep. Zebra Killer, all the craziness that was going on in the city at that time, People's Temple looked somewhat normal in comparison <laughs> to all that. And so you had a lot of mainstream political figure, figures, including Jerry Brown, who's the governor of California now, uh, speaking at People's Temple, uh, Diane Feinstein, uh, was one of the members of the Board of Supervisors who wrote a, uh, out a certificate of honor for Jim Jones, just praising his work. He was thought of as a, um, you know, as a hero wow. in San Francisco. And obviously, once he kills all those people, all of these politicians run from him and act as though they'd never, never known him in the first place. Yeah, well, you mentioned Moscone refused to dig into some of these serious allegations that he knew about from the People's Temple. Was he obviously a bad guy all along the way? I mean, Jim Jones, I mean, certainly they couldn't all of a sudden say, I can't believe Jim Jones had all these people drink the Kool-Aid. There must have been some signs beforehand that he was up to no good. Well, I mean, I'll give you one example. In 1975, when Moscone becomes mayor of San Francisco, just by a few thousand votes, there were a lot of people who felt that People's Temple rigged the election, that they had bust in people from out of town, from Los Angeles and elsewhere, as improper uh, electors, hmm. and they voted in the election. So Moscone was pressured into doing an investigation, the district attorney was, and he handed over the district, he, the district attorney handed over the investigation to his deputy, 
his deputy was also Jim Jones's deputy. And so it shows you how much mm-hmm. in with the in crowd People's Temple was that the very guy investigating People's Temple for voter fraud was the second in command at People's Temple. And of course, he found no wrongdoing in that investigation. Good grief. Well, Harvey Milk, I mean, you really nailed it when you said Jim Jones could do no wrong in life and Harvey Milk could do no wrong once he was dead. I mean, that's really been the case. What is the discrepancy between Harvey Milk's image and the Sean Penn movie and, you know, an icon in California schools and they're teaching about how he's this great guy to school children versus the reality of his life? I mean, for one thing, he was involved with a 16 year old boy and not the greatest guy in the world, to say the least. Well, I was on a radio show like this uh, about 10 years ago in San Francisco, and I was contacted by a rather prominent gay man in the city who said that in the early 1970s, Harvey Milk had raped a teenager. And I don't mean statutory rape. I mean a, a violent, forcible rape where the kid suffered some injuries. Now, this guy didn't see this happen, but he was with Milk, went out with Milk and this, this kid one night. The kid couldn't get into the bars. Milk and the kid went their way. He went another the next morning, he finds the kid balled up, bloody, bruised in Harvey Milk's doorway. He takes him out to, to breakfast, and the kid described what had happened. And this man had been holding the secret, told one other person besides me in the last, you know, 40, 45 years, and told me. And at that point, I started looking into things. And as you mentioned, Harvey, you know, one of the things that is not disputed is that in, in 1964, Harvey Milk picked up a runaway on the streets of Manhattan, attempted to get to become his legal guardian, moved him into his house and, you know, really kind of flaunted this relationship with this kid who was only 16. You know, that would seem to be, particularly in the age of the Me Too movement, a, a disqualifier um, at the very least for a state holiday yeah. celebrating a man in the, in the schools of California. But there is a Harvey Milk Day that's celebrated as a state holiday, an official holiday in California. That when the kids go to school, you know, that day they learn about Harvey Milk. Presumably they don't learn about this side of him. But, <laughs> right, um, right. That, that is, you know, p- part of what's in my book, that you're not going to find anywhere else. You're not going to find that in the, um, the the Sean Penn movie. They just named a terminal at uh, San Francisco Airport in honor of Milk. Wow. And I, I think what bothers me about it all is that, you know, there's a narrative about the guy. And certainly, you know, he did some good things in life, and some, see, he, he had some laudable qualities about him. But anything that is, um, you know, anything, his relationship with Jones, his relationship with these teenagers, all that is kind of flushed down the memory hole because people don't want to hear that. It really clashes with the narrative. And that's what the book is about, not only with Jonestown, sort of bringing to light some of the, the unsavory aspects that were sort of brushed under the rug, but also with, with Harvey Milk, with his relationship with Jones and with his relationship with, with these young men. Hang on just a moment. We're going to go to a quick break. We'll come back with Dan Flynn. Cult City is the name of the book. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. Stay with us. Are you in need of a health care program? You're in luck. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. 
Programs start as low as $199 per month, and there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more by calling 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561 or visit libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. Here's Dan Steiner, president of Preborn, with an important update. The COVID-19 virus is having a terrible impact for the most vulnerable among us, the unborn. This past week, a woman shared she feared being pregnant with so much going on in the world. The abortionist gave her an RU46 pill to terminate her pregnancy. Our preborn center was there for her, however, reversed the abortion pill and saved her baby. Our crisis line is flooded with women with similar stories. Preborn centers are the alternative to Planned Parenthood. And this May, through a challenge grant, Preborn will be able to send 100 to clinics if this goal is reached. And you can help. Call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. One ultrasound is just $28, but this challenge will double your efforts. To donate, just call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. All gifts are tax deductible. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a preborn banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today, and now here's Janet. We are back on Janet Mefford today. Glad you're with us and glad to be talking with Dan Flynn, senior editor of The American Spectator. His book is called Cult City, Jim Jones, Harvey Milk, and 10 Days That Shook San Francisco. And part of the reason I really appreciate your book, Dan, is I like truth and I like when truth is told and you don't have myths rising up about people, but in fact, you're getting facts about people. And this is so interesting, the intersection, as you've mentioned, of the political class in San Francisco back in 1978, how they you know, like Jim Jones and Jim Jones helped them. And Harvey Milk was this icon today. But now we've been talking about some of the truth about Harvey Milk. What about the 10 days that shook San Francisco? Because you're right, within this 10 day period, you had both the Jonestown massacre and the assassinations of Harvey Milk and also the the mayor, George Moscone. Talk a little bit about that time period and why that's such a, a fascinating story for people to understand. Well, these are the two biggest events that happened in San Francisco in the 1970s, and they, they happen to have happened within the course of nine days of one another. I think with regard to the assassination of Milk and Moscone, the story that gets passed down is that Dan White, um, you know, the chant that they had about Dan White was Dan White, Dan White, hitman for the new right. right. They painted him out as some sort of right-wing Republican who um, killed Harvey Milk because of homophobia. The reality is is that Dan White mentor in politics. The person he most admired was Dianne Feinstein, and she really took him under his wing. While he was on the board, he always voted for affirmative action. He was outspoken in his support for gun control. He sometimes voted for for gay rights measures. He sometimes voted against them. Uh, He attended in San Francisco the largest fundraiser for gay rights in the history of the United States up to that point, uh, donated money to it. Um, And so the idea that he was you know, he killed Harvey Milk because of homophobia, it really doesn't pass, um, you know, any sort of factual analysis. I I interviewed his uh, chief of staff, the guy who was the first person he hired in politics, was his campaign manager. 
uh, was his business partner later when he opened up an eatery in San Francisco. Uh, this is a gay man. I mean, this, he right. hired a gay man as the first person, and, and he thinks that this is all ridiculous, that, that uh, White killed um, Milk because he was gay. I mean, it, it, it doesn't make sense that someone who would, you know, the first person they hire in politics was gay would, would hate gays that much that he would kill someone just for that simple fact. Right. The reality is, is that Dan White resigned his position. He was pressured into asking for it back by the police union and others who had supported him. The mayor of San Francisco initially said, yes, you can have your job back. He did so in a very public way. Harvey Milk went to the mayor and said, look, we're coming out on the wrong side of too many six to five votes. You'd be insane to to let this guy back on the board. And on considering that, um, George Moscone went back on his word, a moral politics, maybe, but but smart politics. And Dan White, a guy who really couldn't take losing. Um, and you probably your listeners have probably come across people like that in their lives. Someone who always has to win the argument, always has to be right, always has to win at everything. He was very much that kind of a guy. Hmm. And he went and killed uh, uh, Moscone, and then he killed uh, Harvey Milk in uh, in City Hall. Ironically, the first day of Dan White's political career in office in San Francisco, he manages to make Diane Feinstein the chairman, or the president of the Board of Supervisors in San Francisco. On his last day, he makes her mayor. Um, and so there really isn't going to be any, you know, a Diane Feinstein that we know of today without Dan White. Hmm. People don't like to talk about that. They do like to talk about this mythology that he was motivated by homophobia. He wasn't. He, he was, you know, certainly a bad guy, um, but he was not, that was not the reason why he killed Harvey Milk. Yeah, that is interesting. And also the myths surrounding the People's Temple, I thought, were very interesting, such as the fact that the People's Temple actually had a Marxist bent. And that that really, you know, flies in the face of a lot of the narrative that's been put in the media about Jim Jones. Oh, he was a fundamentalist Christian. Why do they paint him that way when truly he wasn't at all a fundamentalist Christian? Well, right when Jonestown happened, when the news broke, uh, the New York Times wrote that Jim Jones was preaching fundamentalist Christianity. The Associated Press said that the people in, in, in Jonestown had killed themselves, they were religious zealots. Uh, Walter Cronkite got on CBS Evening News and called uh, Jones a fascist. Um, this doesn't really speak to what they were. This, this sort of dilu- you know, diluted people into this narrative that the people who were drinking the Kool-Aid were uh, these religious zombies. Um, in fact, you know, and, and I, I hesitate to even raise this because it's, it's, it's such a disgusting story, but I interviewed a number of survivors, and they told me that down in Jonestown, all of anyone coming in with a Bible, that that was confiscated, and they, all of their personal Bibles were taken away from them. They were given back because they ran out of toilet paper <gasps> in Jonestown. Oh, no. And Yes, yes. And that happened. I'm not going to go into detail any further than that. But that, you know, you don't see fundamentalist Christians doing that. Um, And so one of the guys I interviewed was, you know, one of the very few people who survived, who who was allowed to leave uh, Jonestown once the killings began. There were, you know, 911 people who killed themselves within uh, Jonestown and only nine people who lived, who, who, uh, you know, were there once it started. And I spoke to one of them and he was given $3 million to take from Jonestown to the capital of Guyana, Georgetown, to give to the Soviet embassy because they were willing their money to the Soviet Union. Jim Jones was a hardcore Marxist, 
Um, that was not something that he hid at all, at least certainly in the 1970s. It was not something that he was hiding. Um, and yet there's this view of him that, you know, the whole political angle, which was the alpha and omega of, of People's Temple, is sort of stripped out of the story. Um, here was this guy that was not only cavorting with mainstream politicians, you know, campaigning with Rosalind Carter, introducing Rosalind Carter, the first lady of the United States, when she's campaigning for her, for her husband in 1976 in San Francisco. Um, so he was very much in with the in crowd, but also he had this very extreme uh, political bent where he was a Stalinist. He was someone who, who, who uh, was an, uh, you know, out and out Marxist. And in fact, the whole idea of revolutionary suicide, you know, taken from a concept that, he, you know, Huey Newton wrote a book called Revolutionary Suicide, and that's why they called what they did in Jonestown Revolutionary Suicide. He told the people they were dying for communism. They were dying for socialism. Um, and so he gave this very sort of meaningless event where all these people just killed themselves for nothing, this sort of highfalutin political angle where they were really dying for a cause. They were really dying for communism. And, of course, so many of those people down there were willing to do that. Good grief. Oh, I remember that. It was absolutely horrible, absolutely stunning to everybody when that happened, and they couldn't figure out why in the world would anybody want to commit mass suicide. But the story becomes a little bit more clear when you go through all the details that you share in the book. What do you think, when you're looking at this 10-day period, Dan, that shook San Francisco, you had mentioned that you say, you know, much of what plagued Jonestown plagued San Francisco first. What is the big takeaway here when you look at that 10-day period and you see the connections between all of these men and the myths that have arisen surrounding Dan White and surrounding Harvey Milk and surrounding Jim Jones? What do we learn from all of this? And why is it important, do you think, for people to know about? Well, I think many of the people that were involved um, are still very much in power. Jerry Brown, for one, is still the governor of California. Dianne Feinstein is a senator from from, uh, the state of California still. Um, you had people like Jane Fonda promoting um, uh, Jim Jones, uh, Angela Davis, Huey Newton, all of these people that, you know, in some circles are very much admired. And yet once this happens, once this cataclysmic event where 918 people die happens, all of them run and they escape responsibility. And I'll just, you know, make one point on that. The street, the, the most prominent address in San Francisco is where City Hall is. And that is currently called Halton B. Goodwood Place. Carlton B. Goodlett was probably even more so than Harvey Milk. He was the biggest booster of Jim Jones, so much so that two days after Jonestown, he was still defending Jim Jones, still attacking the people who had been critical of Jim Jones on public television in San Francisco. And that, you would think that would doom someone's reputation. Instead, in San Francisco, his name is on the, the, the most prominent street address in the city. One Carlton B. Goodlett place is where City Hall is located. So anyone like Herb Kane, who got a Pulitzer later in life, Jane Fonda, anyone who was in the bag for, for Jim Jones, they didn't suffer any repercussions. But all of those poor people, many of them from San Francisco, who followed Jim Jones, they paid for it very dearly. Yeah, they sure did. See, all of this stuff that you're bringing out probably is information a lot of us have never heard before. But it is important to, you know, hold these people accountable and know the truth and what actually went on during that 10-day period. It's really, as I say, a fascinating story from the book Cult City, Jim Jones, Harvey Milk, and 10 Days That Shook San Francisco. And it was great to have with us Dan Flynn from The American Spectator. Really interesting book, Dan. It was so good to talk to you about it. Really appreciate your being here. 
outstanding. Thank you so much. All right. You take care. Thanks again for being here. And thank you for joining us. From GraceWorks, Pictures Comes Indivisible, based on the true story of Army Chaplain Darren Turner and his wife, Heather. Indivisible, rated PG-13, may be inappropriate for children under 13, now playing. More information is available at IndivisibleMovie.com. We'll see you next time here on Janet Meffer Today.